Matthew chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible, you can Google it in your phone. You should be able to find, just type in Matthew chapter 2. Now, I'm reading from the ESV and from verse 1. I'll read a portion of Scripture, and then we'll get moving. Thank you, God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and Jerusalem all with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophets, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Herod then summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Down to verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. It's a story that you may know some of it, and we'll look at a little bit of it in a minute. There's another story you may have heard of, and that's called The Grinch. Have you ever heard of that story? No? Yes? Well, the title of today's message is Great Grinching or Great Joy. (laughs) Great Grinching or Great Joy. What is a Christmas Grinch? Am I a Christmas Grinch? Are you a Christmas Grinch? Is it possible to Grinch greatly? (laughs) What is Great Joy? Can you have Great Joy? Would anyone here love to have Great Joy? Only one person. Thanks, Mark. (laughs) You know the profound theological work by Dr. Seuss called The Grinch tells the story of the Grinch who hated Christmas. And partway in the story he remembers why, because he remembers back to his childhood and how brutal his childhood Christmases were. And so he hated Christmas. At another point he reminds himself that it's just better to be this way. His great sadness, his great anger towards Christmas, he speaks to himself and he says, it's just better that I stay like this. The joy of others become his worst nightmare. He really cannot stand it. He's seeing the joy of all others. You see all the profound theology in this book. (laughs) The joy of others drives him to such a place where he decides, I must stop this whole thing. I must cancel Christmas. I must cancel joy. It's just too painful to see joy. I'll steal Christmas and I'll steal joy. Such a profound story arc. I don't want to give the end away. 
for those who haven't read it. <laughs> but it's a great story of indifference, which burns into anger and great blindness to joy and eventually leads to evil actions. This is the most profound theology. Actually, we'll see it mirrors Matthew chapter 2. And um, there's a very profound theologian called Zaya. He's a six-year-old boy who lives in my house. <laughs> and we were talking about the Grinch story, and then we've also got on our wall a Advent calendar, which over 24 days, we turn them over, and each one has the name of Jesus, the cornerstone, the Word of God, the Messiah, Emmanuel. And we had one which we turned over this week, said the vine. Now, obviously, each time we're trying to explain to the kids what's, what the meaning is, we, we're talking to the kids about Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. You know, when a, a, a branch is snapped off from the vine, it dies. How does a branch survive? It stays attached to the vine, with, you know, deep theology. And Zaya says, in a moment of pure genius, he says, so the Grinch is not connected to the vine. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> The Grinch is not connected to the vine. Very profound. I oh, just, I didn't ask him any more questions. I was too afraid <laughs> of his great knowledge and wisdom. This Grinch story, what does this have to do with Matthew chapter 2? Well, this is an even more profound story of indifference, which leads to anger and blindness and evil. We've got three points this morning, indifference, hostility, and great joy. The Magi arrived in the city, as we hear the story, they arrived in Jerusalem, and they ask, where is this king? Jerusalem is a buzz. There's a whole train of them, they, they arrived in train, the, the Bible doesn't say there were three of them, there were three gifts. There's probably more. I mean, to cause an uproar in the city, three people don't normally do that. The whole of Jerusalem is abuzz with what's going on. Who's this king? Where's this king? And the experts tell them, oh, he's to be born in Bethlehem. Where's the king to be born? The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Verse 7 enters Herod's part of the story, and he says, Herod summoned these wise men secretly, and he, and he ascertained from them, what time has the star appeared? And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go ahead, search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring him to me so that I can come and worship. This is the scene. There's a great buzz in Jerusalem. But Herod is not actually bothered to go to Jesus. He uses the right words when he says, I want to worship Jesus, so long as I don't have to leave the palace. I'd love to worship Jesus, I just don't want to interfere with my life at the moment. You go and do it. You go and tell me where he is. So Herod is indifferent. He's semi-interested, but not prepared to move at all. I want to worship him so long as I don't have to leave my palace. Do you know that you and I are almost identical to Herod in the story most often? We want to worship Jesus. We might have even the right words. As long as I don't have to do it when I'm not at church. As long as I want the worship team and the pastor to go and find Jesus, and then I'll come here and I'll get a little bit of Jesus, 
and a cinnamon scroll next week. <laughs> but if it's anything more than that, I'm uh, not sure I want to, um, you go and do it. Tell me a little bit about it. Herod is indifferent to Jesus. You know, we know what to say. Tell me about Jesus. Oh, yes, I want to worship him. I worship Jesus. I don't want it to affect my routine. I will worship Jesus as long as I don't have to leave my palace. I want to worship Jesus so long as I don't have to change my attitude or my behavior in any way. <laughs> Herod is indifferent, wants to change nothing. The chief priests and the scribes are equally indifferent to Jesus. In fact, they even know the Bible verses, you know, the Magi arrive and they say, where is, where is the king going to be born? And they're like, easy, Micah 5 verse 2, Bethlehem. There you go, Bible verse. They knew exactly, they quoted straight away, they didn't have to look it up even. It seems that they just knew, because they knew the whole scriptures. And yet what happens? Do they go rush off to seek out Jesus? No. They stay the same. Knowing a lot of Bible verses doesn't guarantee that you're pursuing Jesus. Where's he to be born? Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. Anyone going? No, nah, oh, no, nah. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> not moving at all. You could quote the scriptures, but you can actually not be responding to them. The Magi, on the other hand, they're the opposite. They arrive, where is he? And they go, they've traveled all this way to Jerusalem, and then they ask, where is he? And then they go, they say, he's in Bethlehem, then they go head down there. The Magi are people who don't really know the scriptures. In fact, they were astronomers. They were those who looked at the stars. And so they are now moving past those who even could quote the Bible. Doesn't matter how much Bible you know, there's an attitude and a pursuit of Jesus which is, trumps that every time. It trumps it every time. Maybe you know a lot of scriptures. You might be in danger of becoming indifferent towards Jesus. A tender, responsive, obedient heart towards Jesus trumps our knowledge every time. And so Herod is not interested really in Jesus. Maybe you know the scriptures. Love God with all your strength. Yes, I know, but you know, I'm, I'm quite busy. I'm not sure I can do that. Oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you your busy life. <laughs> Love your neighbor. Oh, but you don't know my neighbors. Ooh, the tapping's living up the road from me. <laughs> Pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. You know, actually I do. You keep telling me everything they've done to you. <laughs> Bless those who curse you. No, no, that's just crazy. Blessing's not my native tongue. I just have to pull people down. That's my native tongue. You, you, I can't do that. Bless and not curse. Do you know these Bible verses? Forgive. Yeah, but I have to have them acknowledge what they did to me, and also I wasn't wrong at all. <laughs> That's tongue-in-cheek, right? Maybe you know that verse. Do you have a tender heart that responses? Rejoice in the Lord always. Uh -huh. No, rejoicing is not really my thing. It's not something I do. It's for the other people. In humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Yeah, but, but they're all worse than me. Give thanks in all circumstances. 
Mm, you don't know my circumstances. Since the dawn of creation, there's never been anyone who's been through what I've been through. All this is examples of where sometimes we know what, what God calls us to, but sometimes we choose not to go there. We choose to remain where we are in our own little kingdoms. All this earns you the right to live in your palace with Herod next to you, ruling over your kingdom, where to you be the glory, the great things that you do and the great decisions you make and the great justice that you uphold with your powerful decrees across the vast glories of your great kingdom where your great will is done. Oh no, God may we never live like this. It's very easy to end up there, isn't it? I think you can maybe all identify, and I certainly can, that I tend to live like that. I can tend to be no things, but still remain indifferent towards Jesus. Indifferent to, indifference to Jesus is just another way of saying, I am my own king, and it is one of the great idols of our society that I need to be king. I need to be free. The cultural idol of personal, individual freedom, personal autonomy. I must be free. Actually, we, we, we ought not to. We ought to belong to Jesus. We ought to whole, whole, wholly be bound to Him, to serve Him, to love Him, to put others first, to pour ourselves out, to honor others' opinions above ourselves, above our own, to admit that we are in constant need of Jesus and to lose our lives. Human autonomy never results in freedom. It always results, in fact, in the opposite because it is itself the origin of sin and the pathway to great grinching. We do not have within ourselves the means of true freedom and joy. We have to admit that we've lost our joy because of our rebellion to God's authority. Our only real hope is to find a new king. A new king who knows all things, who is able to rule all things, who is completely good, who is perfect in grace and mercy and redemption, who loves us with an unending love. Our only hope is to surrender to Jesus. Have you become indifferent to Jesus? And so we see in the story there's an indifference to Jesus from Herod and from the chief priests. And that indifference then grows, Matthew 2 verse 16, it grows, as it always does, into hostility. The indifference later grows into hostility and active anger, both Herod and the chief priests. Herod becomes so angry that he kills all the babies. Later on, the chief priests become so angry that they actually put Jesus to death. Herod was interested in being king. He wasn't interested in worshiping Jesus. He wanted to be king. He was jealous of Jesus, who was the king. He did not want Jesus to be king. He felt threatened that his rule and his comfort and his position would be upset. Again, you and I are so often the same as Herod. Don't ask me anything that threatens my rule over my life my comfort or my position. I am the king of my time, my comforts, and everything revolves around me. I am shocked at how often you can hear that in the speech of believers. How everything revolves around me. And Herod didn't get his way and he became furious. That's what happens. Have you ever become furious? 
Have you ever been disrupted? What makes you furious? What happens when the things that are king in your life don't get their way? I can tell you, or don't ask me how I know this, a friend of a friend, happened to a friend of a friend of mine, it wasn't me. I hope it was me. It happens to each of us. When the things that are king in our lives don't get their way, we also become angry. And it begins to actually crush us. And in fact, it leads us towards death. When we rule, it only leads towards death. That is a complete offense to our culture. Because our culture tells us, we're okay, we're good enough, find your best life, choose it, do what makes you happy. All of that leads to death. We need a new king who is way more glorious. What are you angry about? What disrupts you? Josh, this seems like a lot of bad news, right? <laughs> well, I'm saying yes, I agree with you. In fact, it's a lot worse than that. It's terrible, terrible news. <laughs> it is the story of sin, which, the, which having Bible knowledge does not exempt you from. It is the story of the impact of making ourselves king. It is easy to see all around us and should cause us to mourn even more greatly. When we see the effect and the brokenness on the lives of the people around us and in our own lives, it actually we have a greater reason to mourn because we know why people are broken. We understand the devastating effects of sin on people's lives and in our own lives. We actually can mourn more deeply. It is very bad news. <laughs> that this is the outcome of living for the self. But Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn their sin shall be comforted, who admit that they need a saviour. Hoping in ourselves leads to anger, but hoping in Jesus leads to mourning, mourning and joy together. Not a contradiction, they both go together. Mourning and joy can go together. We mourn because we look at ourselves and go, we have no hope. But joy comes when we begin to see Jesus. And I want to move to my point number three, looking at Jesus and finding great joy. Matthew chapter 2 verse 10 says that when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house they saw the child and his mother Mary and fell down and worshipped him, and then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts and frankincense and myrrh. Two things you might notice about the wise men was first they had an intent, a desire to find Jesus. They arrived in the city and they said, where's this king? We saw a star, we've come to worship him. They were desirous to pursue Jesus. They knew almost nothing about the Bible, <laughs> and they are desire. You don't have to know a lot. You just have to go, I want Jesus. And God is so good in revealing his life to us. Pursue whatever you know about Jesus, pursue it. They just saw a star, and they just went for it. God graciously led them to the scriptures, where it says, what you're looking for is in Bethlehem, and they found Jesus, the great joy of all creation. And just pursue what you know. Follow what you know about Jesus. And trust the scriptures, look to the scriptures, and pursue him. Their desire was for Jesus. 
I want to ask you, do you have a desire for Jesus, something that is pursuing Jesus? And that desire, of course, turned into action. Our desires always turn to action. Do you know that? Notice that? Desire to be our own king leads to action. Herod desired to remain king, and so eventually that got upset, and he became angry. It led to action. He actually eventually lashed out. The desire of the chief priests grew, and, and they also lashed out. But the desire of the magi caused them to drop everything to go and find Jesus, and their desire grew into an incredible worship of Jesus. They saw him and they worshiped. They traveled to Bethlehem. From there, they moved, they moved towards Bethlehem and their desires turned to worship. They bowed down. It says they fell down and worshiped him. They fell down and worshiped him. They looked beyond the appearance of the circumstances. This seems a little odd, strange little, but I don't know what's really going on here. I didn't have the explanation that this is the king of the universe. It seemed a little of a weird circumstance. This doesn't seem like a great king, but they worshipped him. It says they opened their treasures and they gave it over to him. They let go of their treasures. Open your treasures and leave them to Jesus. Offer them to him. Lord, not only do I let my grip go, I actually give them over to you. I give you everything. And so this worship of Jesus happened when they beheld him. The Magi had found the one worthy of worship. Jesus is more compelling than all things, all the things in creation. When they saw the star, when they saw this Jesus, it said they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they saw Jesus. This is how joy works. When you see something and it's beautiful, it comes into your heart. Can anyone just, in a sense, turn on joy? I don't think so. It happens when you see something beautiful and glorious. You come home from a long day of work and you see your beautiful wife and you rejoice greatly. She's not here to hear it, so please someone tell her I said that. <laughs> you see a Ford Mustang with red, white stripes and you rejoice exceedingly. England are defeated in the ashes and you have great joy. Yeah, it just rushes in. Eric Church releases a new album, and you rejoice exceedingly. No one knows what that's all about. <laughs> they saw Jesus. When you see something worth, it doesn't, you don't have to decide whether it's worth it. It just, joy just rushes in. Joy, you begin to get, I can't believe I just saw that. That's amazing. Jesus is the most beautiful. We have been invited into the beauty of all beauties, the most precious of all things is Jesus. When you behold him, great joy begins to flood in, or you haven't yet seen him properly. Those are the only two options. You either have seen Jesus as he is, and joy rushes into your heart, or you've yet to see him. It's, it can only be like that. We saw Jesus, and when you have seen him, that he is the one who has borne my griefs, joy rushes in. When he is the one who was crushed for my sin, I am filled with awe and joy. When he was punished to bring me peace, when I actually see it, that his wounds are my healing, that he is the arrival of good, good news, that he will never turn away anyone who turns to him. 
that He binds up the brokenhearted, that He liberates the captives, that He opens doors for the bound, for those that are bound, the prison doors. He puts us in favor with God. Have I seen Him who puts us or puts me back in favor with God? He comforts those who mourn and He gives me beauty instead of ashes, instead of ruins. And He gives me praise instead of despair. Have you beheld Him? He gives us everlasting joy instead of shame. He covers us with His righteousness and wipes away every tear. He has defeated sin and He has defeated death. I am no longer afraid of death. He has given me eternal life and no one can snatch me from His hand. He has given us His joy, the Bible says. Do you really see that? Have you beheld it? Is that even true? His grace and mercy follows me all the days of my life. He is the good shepherd. He is the bread of life that I will never hunger again. He is the water of life that I will never thirst again. He has given me everything I need for life and godliness. He has loved me and given me Himself. What could you say to all these things if God is for us Who could ever be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, he will not, will he not also graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies us. Who can condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised to the right hand of God and is now interceding for me. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, not a chance. Shall distress, cannot. Persecution, no chance whatsoever. Famine, it won't. Nakedness, not even. Danger or sword, for it is written, for his sake we are being killed all day long and we are just like sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I'm sure that there is neither death nor life, angels, nor rulers, things in the present nor in the future, that nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation can separate me from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus, that He might have all the glory. You can rejoice exceedingly with great joy. You cannot be separated from the love of God. We are invited into the pleasure of all pleasures. We have the greatest reason for joy. Josh, aren't you being a little bit unrealistic and unauthentic with all this great joy stuff? No, I'm not. All the reasons for great joy I just read to you are completely real. They are more real than anything else. I'd love you to cross out any one of them. Come and tell me which one has been deleted. Are those joy things real? Well, they are. You know, strangely, what is not real is some of our reasons for sulking, some of our reasons for grinching. I am alone. I will never leave you. I have no one to talk to. Whoever comes to me, I will never leave or cast away. I need more money. No, he gives us everything we need. I can't cope with my circumstances. They've crushed me. You will never be tempted beyond what you cannot 
endure. Those are actually the lies. I'm not saying there's not a fight for joy. There is. Life is a fight for joy. Jib read at the start of our service, rejoice always, or rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Paul says it twice. Why? Because it maybe it didn't work the first time. I have to say it again. <laughs> I'll rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, hang on, let me say that again. Rejoice in God always. Life is a fight for joy. But the reality of joy is Jesus. Paul has to speak to himself. He says, I will say it again. I'm talking to myself. Rejoice. Self-rejoice. Hope in God. The psalmist speaks the very same way. He, the psalmist lists a lot of struggles, but he always keeps talking to himself. Put your hope in God, self. Rejoice again in God. 1 Thessalonians 5. I give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. Want to know what the will of God is? Give thanks in all circumstances. There you go. Philippians 1 Thessalonians 5. What is the will of God? Rejoice in all circumstances. Not for every circumstance, in every circumstance. We're not thankful for evil. Things are difficult. Things are, we can struggle. We're not thankful for those things. We don't rejoice in evil, but we rejoice in every circumstance in God. And no way mean that we pretend that struggles don't exist. The Bible looks at the reality of the broken world in stark, brutal honesty, and then it holds out Jesus. It looks straight at the face of the circumstances. That text in Romans, which I read, is a glorious text. Did you notice right in the middle of that, Paul says, we are being led to the slaughter like lambs. It's not a very happy picture, is it? <laughs> We're facing death. I don't think I've been there yet. Paul's saying, in this facing death, and he gives that glorious text. Where was Paul's joy and hope centered? We have a greater reason to mourn because we know that things are broken and seeing them is hard. But we also have the greatest reason to rejoice because we know God. And this is not a contradiction. It is a reality of a God who is over all things because he is. We know the reason for rejoicing. Do you know the reason for rejoicing? Do you know the reason for great joy? The Magi did. They had a long journey. They had to pursue. Didn't really know, but they found, and when they encountered Jesus, they had exceeding great joy. Herod didn't find exceeding great joy. He found more and more reason to be angry. The Pharisees, who even knew the Scriptures, knew what ought to be done, even they didn't find great joy. the tender-hearted honesty of admitting that we need Jesus and desiring to pursue him, not knowing the Scriptures, but desiring to pursue him. Do you know great joy, or have you just heard about it? Have you just heard about it? It's down the road somewhere. Where is your joy located? I'm not asking, is life hard? I know the answer to that. I'm asking, where is your joy located? When do you want to relocate your joy? When do you want to relocate your joy to the glorious realities of Jesus? 
I want to ask you to do it even this morning. I want to ask you to put your hope and your joy in Jesus even this morning. The longer we remain indifferent to Jesus, the more likely we are to end up in evil actions. That's how a sort of progression of that story happens. The longer we remain enthroned in our palace of our kingdom or leave it all to ourselves, we're in trouble. Or will we leave it all behind for Bethlehem to go and find great joy, exceeding great joy and great rejoicing? I'm going to come to close. Just bring it back to remind us, and I'm going to hand over to Mark for communion, about the Grinch story. Do you know he had this... I'm, I'm going to ruin the end. I know I said I wouldn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he had a great reason to be sad. He'd been through horrific things of his past, and as he remembered them, his only response he thought was, ah, it has to, it's better this way, I need to stay here. But that pain became too much that he actually decided, it's not cages for me to stay here, I need to lash out against this. And that's what he did, he tried to steal Christmas, he tried to steal joy. And to stop the whole thing. And so the Grinch was not connected to the vine, as Zaya says. He was not connected to Jesus. <laughs> But you know what the beautiful part of that story is? That the Grinch gets rescued from himself. He gets rescued from himself and somehow finds joy again. The end of the story. Happens through, if you've seen the, the movie, the kids movie, a little girl who loves him and points him back to joy. And he, he slowly gets broken down by it and rejoins, finds his joy again. He beautifully gets rescued from himself. This is really what this communion table is. It's an invitation by Jesus for us to be rescued from ourselves. I know I've pushed hard on some things and some of you I can feel, I'm sure you are resisting because you feel so justified in the positions you hold. I can't do this, I can't forgive, I can't rejoice, I cannot, I cannot. There are so many reasons to remain there. I want to invite you this morning to relocate the joy. I'm not saying it's a switch that will just turn something off and on and forever you'll be dancing through the streets of <laughs> singing songs. But there can be a, I would truly believe there can be a fundamental shift on the identity and the place in which we find our joy, and that is in Jesus. And He is glorious, He changes everything. Mark, will you come lead us?